We're in John 18. We're going to be looking at some stuff, but I want to kind of, if you will, on your handout, you'll notice, I think I put this on there, that I'd like to just kind of, as we come out of this uh, uh, section uh, to, uh, and, and go into 18, to just notice a couple of things. Notice here in chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words. Now, it, uh, the context here, I just want to kind of set it up, uh, and you probably know this, but I, I want to just remind you of something. This section we've been in, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, is the longest section of teaching that's identified of Jesus in one setting. It's longer than the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7 Matthew. This is the largest corpus that we <clears throat> call in biblical say the largest corpus of, of, of Jesus' teaching anywhere in the New Testament. And we've been working through it. And it's a pretty good-sized section. I remember in chapter 13, teaching about servanthood and love. I'm trying to give you some context here. In chapter 14, the assurance of our future and the Holy Spirit. If you want to go back and study about the Holy Spirit, John 14 is where to go. John 14 is where to go. Uh, and 16, but John 14 really lays it out. Uh, living our life in the vine and not the world, John 15. Living our life in the vine, Jesus as the vine, not the world, John 15. The world hating Jesus and his followers, the struggle, the conflict that we sometimes find ourselves in, John 16. And finally, what some have called the high priestly prayer, this prayer that Jesus prays for his followers then, and he said in 1720, I, I don't just pray for, for, the, for these, but all those who will believe on account of their testimony. There's a massive section here, uh, if you will, uh, in the terms of the teaching of Jesus. There's no other place in the New Testament where there's this much material in one place in a, in a constant flow, if you will, than this section. Some have even said that the Gospel of John is really a few things about Jesus and then the last couple of days of his life. Because really, that's where you start picking that up. So we're moving now into John 18. And it says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now I want to stop right there, again, some more context here. Because as we read this section here, as we work through this, there's some other interesting contextual matters. Uh, in this event where Jesus will, or John will record, where Jesus now goes into the garden, let me just lift out a few things to you. Just a note. Maybe you've noticed this before, but, but here it is. In this account, there's no mention of the name of the garden. It just says a garden. No, no mention of Gethsemane. None whatsoever. Uh, <clears throat> uh, there's no mention of Jesus asking the disciples to pray with him. Remember, in the, in the other accounts, the, what we call the synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says, would you pray with me? No mention. Uh, <clears throat> there is uh, no mention in this account of Jesus' agony. None whatsoever. Nothing to say about when he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. No mention at all. Uh, there's no kiss <clears throat> from Judas to identify him. Uh, there's no prediction of Peter's denial. Uh, this particular account 
is unusual. This is why in the New Testament we call the synoptic gospels. The word synoptic means to see the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke see things in really pretty much the same way. There's some question about their using a common document here. John is considered another gospel. It's the fourth gospel that has a different view on things. It doesn't mean it's different in what happened. It means that John tends to emphasize matters differently. Uh, I have a couple of friends that are lawyers. Uh, one of them's even a Christian. And uh, <laughs> that uh, uh, one of the things that lawyers are attentive to whenever there's given testimony is when testimony is identical. They always assume there's been collusion or somebody's trying to make up something here. The fact is that the Gospels go from different perspectives and different viewpoints. Don't let that trouble you. These are not biographies or diaries where on Tuesday Jesus did this. The Gospel writers are taking these events and selectively determining, if you will, which ones we want to write about, right? I will tell you this. This is one of the great problems that Muslims have with the Gospels. They believe that if there is a Gospel, there's only one, right? They don't understand, and maybe we haven't understood as well, that these are not diaries. Let me give you the word for them. They are theological documents. Matthew has a theological concern. Is Jesus actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament? That's why you see that language. This was ordered to fulfill. Nobody else does it like Matthew. Over and over and over and over and over again, Matthew's saying, this was to fulfill, right? Luke, because of his genealogy, of tracing Jesus' birth back to Adam, not Abraham, which Matthew does. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy back to Adam because Luke's gospel is the gospel for the Gentiles and the outsiders, not the Jews. It's the one written to the Gentiles and the outsiders and the people on the margins. Mark's gospel has to do with its use of Roman names, Rufus and other names like that, that suggest that Mark's gospel is written to a Roman audience in an attempt to try to suggest that. Stuart? The question here for the recording is that Stuart's asking, he's trying to trip me up. Okay, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, what Stuart's asking is, I think it's likely because Mark is likely the first gospel that was ever written. As far as we can tell, we, we call that proto-Mark or that Mark was first in the writing of the gospel. So I think, yes, I think he had access to that. One of my contentions is going to be here that one of the reasons that John does not raise these other issues is because they're already part of the gospel synoptic tradition. Why write about it again? You know, why, why bring this back up? We know this. In fact, uh, John re refers to a statement. I don't know if we'll get there today. It's toward the end of this chapter where, where Caiaphas says it's better that one man die than the whole nation, and that's in the synoptic tradition. So he's pulling out of the, synop the, the tradition of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, I don't know if this bothers you, but sometimes people will raise these kind of issues that the Gospels aren't all identical, and that's because they're not biographies. Listen, let me give you the word. They are theological documents attempting to communicate a theological concern. They're not just stories. They're theological documents to communicate this message to the Jews, Matthew, to the Gentiles, if you will, Luke, to the Roman particular group in Mark. 
And so this is why. And my suggestion is that John doesn't add these things or, or include them, if you will, because he wants to emphasize other matters of this story. There are some other things here he wants to communicate that uh, uh, he, he's going to dial in on. So we're going to look at that. Now, uh, it says right here that they uh, came across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. Now, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this or not. This is a picture um, of the Mount of Olives that is not much more of the Mount of Olives. It's mostly the Mount of Graveyards. <laughs> this is where every Jewish person wants to be buried. And uh, on this, in the foreground here, is what was the Mount of Olives. Uh, and a lot of uh, olive trees were there until they started burying people and cutting down trees. Now, this is, if you'll see, this is the eastern wall of Jerusalem right here. This is the eastern wall where the Messiah is supposed to come through right here. And this is the Kidron Valley, which is just kind of a lower spot outside this gate. And then right over here, can you see this thing uh, moving around a little bit? This right here is the Garden of Gethsemane, that, that area there. Here's a better picture of the Kidron Valley. This, again, is the wall, the eastern wall. Um, I have always been a little bit amused, and Daryl and others have been over there, that on that eastern gate, uh, that when Israel, or when, when Jerusalem was uh, uh, controlled by the Muslims in that particular time, the eastern gate on that side is where the Messiah is supposed to come. And what they did, they cemented it up just in case. <laughs> I'm serious, it's cemented up, you know, they, just in case. Uh, then here is uh, a picture of the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, there, there are trees in there. When we were walking through there one time, we were talking to someone that, that there were trees in there that were, if you will, over 2,000 years old. There, there was one that was bigger around than this table. It wasn't real tall, and it, it just, it's, a, it's amazing. This is not one of those old ones, huge ones, but... There's this garden. And notice John just says, and there was a garden. There was a garden. Just a garden. Now, <clears throat> this Kidron Valley that Christians, some Christians believe that Christ will return on earth here. Jesus, John wants to say, this is where Jesus is. He's in the Kidron Valley. That This is where the Messiah will return on the Mount of Olives. Jews believe that the Messiah will come through the Kidron Valley from the east, from the Mount of Olives, and arrive at the Temple Mount. Muslims believe that the prophet Jesus will come through this Kidron Valley in a similar way, not as the Messiah, but as a prophet. These views of the end times suggest that this area is full of some understanding about the end. And if we read the New Testament and we understand it in, as I would suggest, there is some end time thing happening here. And it's called the bringing about of salvation for humanity. That there is an end time event. That, that's why the writer of Hebrews says in 1.1 that in these last days, in these, it was written 2,000 years ago. In many and various ways, God spoke to the fathers of the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. That word last is eschatos, that we get the word eschatology from. The question is, what has happened here in this Kidron Valley or what is about to happen? Just something to think about. Now, here's something else I want you to think about, just context. This is just cliff. I'm on spring break, and I have time to think. <laughs> a garden. A garden. No name, just a garden. Uh, John, again, doesn't bring everything to bear on this. But if you read the Gospel of John up to this point, and we have, 
There are some things about the Gospel of John here that make me think or consider, I'm not going to follow my sword on this, I'm not going to create a church out of this, I'm not going to write a book on it, <clears throat> but the idea of re referencing a garden, that John references some significant Old Testament issues. How does he begin the gospel? In the beginning, God, or the, was the word. In the beginning was the word. That sounds a whole lot like what? Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John begins with, in the beginning was the word. And the word was, with, there, there, there's an Old Testament allusion here as he begins his gospel. That this is the creation of a new humanity. This is the creation of a new world in some sense. Second of all, uh, Jesus' baptism. It says that the spirit of God uh, came down. A lot of people read that and read Isaiah 64 when Isaiah says, oh, that you would come down and visit us. Go read Isaiah 64.1. It's, it's fascinating. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's exactly what happened at Jesus' baptism. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, where there is this notion of give us this bread that we may have every day. What would that remind people of in the Old Testament? Manna, yeah, you know the, the, the giving that, and you know the word manna, what it means. We did. Yet, so I say that the other day, or am I just hearing that in my head, <laughs> which is a scary place to be? Yeah, manna it just means what is it? You know, I go to the cafeteria sometimes and go on the line and go manna, <laughs> and they look at me like what? I say manna, and. Uh, they don't know either. <laughs> the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, Jesus shows up at the temple often and teaches. Malachi 3 tells us that the teacher of righteousness will show up at the temple and teach. Another one, the true shepherd. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd in 10. That, that reminds us of Jeremiah 3.15, where he, God says, I'm going to send shepherds that will guide you and direct you. I, I'm, just, I'm just thinking here. Of, of a lot of these allusions in John to the Old Testament. And I just, again, just, just a thought here. What if, what if John is saying, Jesus went to a garden because centuries before that, something happened in a garden? What was that? Adam failed in a garden. Jesus throughout the New Testament is often called the second Adam. This Adam goes to the garden to succeed. Maybe that's why John didn't say garden. He just says he went to a garden. And here with Old Testament understanding, understanding John's connection and reverence for the Old Testament is it possible, you know, it's maybe possible, that this whole understanding is that God is showing, or John is showing that Jesus is going to the garden to obey God, to, if you will, to succeed in the test and bring salvation to all. What John tells us seems to say that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and where he's going. Now let's start reading here. Verse 2, 
Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, come with lanterns and torch, uh, torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And Jesus answered them, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way, his disciples, to fulfill the word which he spoke of those who had given him, I lost not one. Now, I want to start here with uh, this idea of this topic, if we have it, is Jesus in command of the situation. Jesus in command of the situation. The language here uh, suggests, uh, and we'll look at this in more detail, that Jesus is taking the fight to them. Uh, you'll notice here in a minute. And, and the idea that he is in command. He is no victim here. There is no sense in which this is some tragedy occurring, but this is Jesus in command of the situation. So I was thinking about that. Okay, what, is, what, is that, what does that mean? What does it mean to be in command? And I, here's the way my brain works. Here we go. I don't know if you know this guy. This guy's name is Justin Wren, W-R-E-N. And uh, he's uh, an MMA fighter. Some of y'all know of him through he uh, fights uh, in Jesus' name. He'll crush your head in Jesus' name. <laughs> uh, he's, he's a Water 4 guy. He uh, helps uh, raise money for Water 4. And um, he is a fight for the forgotten. He's written a book. He uh, calls himself the Big Pygmy. And a group of people in the Congo that are without water and all like that. And when I think about being in command, I think this guy's 6'3 and 265. Okay? Imagine running to him. What I love about Justin, I've seen a couple of his fights. He is in complete control of himself in this regard. When he beats somebody to a pulp, he's not mad at him. <laughs> I've watched him every go hug him, you know, hey man, great fight, you know. There's not a bit of malice in him. But when he gets in the ring, he's in control, <laughs> right? The other night, they had the MMA fight. It lasted two minutes and 35 seconds. <laughs> he was the world champion. He, this idea of being, now I'm not suggesting Jesus is here to beat you into submission, although it might help for a few of you. But, but, but the idea of, of, of being in command of the situation, of being command. again, if you ever get to watch this guy, I just tell you, it, to me, it's, it's remarkable. Here's a guy in a, in a sport where you have to just bring the person to utter submission, and he does it without malice, anger, hatred. He just says, I'm going to get you. <laughs> I'm going to bring you down. Now, maybe if you see Jesus like this, I don't know. <laughs> But I want to look here that Jesus is in command of the situation. Notice here, Jesus initiates. Jesus is initiating. Number one, Jesus 
is initiating. It says right here that Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows what's going to happen here. And as he sees, now watch here, Jesus knows what's going on, and Judas had received the Roman cohort there in verse 3. That's interesting because in Greek, the article the is not ever there unless it's on purpose. It's never just there. You don't ever translate it. It's there. There's some question here that Jesus is being rounded up by the Roman cohort that guards Jerusalem in the Antonia uh, fortress. This is a, just a like special forces group of guys. And they are the cohort that guard Jerusalem and the Antonia uh, uh, fortress. Here it says, they bring the cohort and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they bring lanterns and tortures and weapons. Jesus, knowing this, what's going to happen, what does he do? He initiates. Who are you looking for? He doesn't run. You know, you can imagine if you saw the Italian, or you saw the Roman cohort coming with weapons and torches and lanterns. This is a pretty sharp group of, of warriors, as well as the chief priests. And all of a sudden, Jesus initiates, says, who are you looking for? And they say, well, we're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I'm him. Now, that's interesting, and I don't want to draw, draw too far, but uh, in, the, in the Greek New Testament here, it, uh, in your Bible, I don't know if, if, if um, uh, you have uh, the word he in there in verse 3, is it in, in italics? It's being provided as a modifier to make it be a little smoother here. But Jesus, in the original language, says here, I am. Now, what does that remind you of? <laughs> I am, and, and in English, you have to supply the pronoun, I am. Well, I'm, I'm he, right? But in Greek, it's just, I am. Now, the people have commented on this before, that, that Jesus here is, again, asserting his divinity. Jesus is asserting, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, but I got news for you, that Jesus the Nazarene is who? God in the flesh. Now, there's some interesting thoughts here about this initiating. Jesus doesn't wait for them. He goes to them. He makes contact while they're seeking him. The term suggests that Jesus is willing and able and determining to initiate this. Not going to run. Not going to leave. Now, it says there, when he says this, who do you seek? And he tells them, I am he. And it says, they asked him, I mean, they drew back and fell on the ground. Interesting. Now, I'm going to try to work here just for a second, because in this initiating, what does that have to do with us? Well, um, there are some that suggest, and just seeing the word, uh, they draw back and fall to the ground, that there's some kind of supernatural power when Jesus states his name. Um, that's a, a thought but the word here used when they move back or fall back uh, doesn't suggest uh, anything supernatural. This word falling back uh, shows up. I used to look at this. By the way, this is a, not part of the deal. But whenever you're interested in what a word means in the Bible, don't just go to the dictionary. Don't, don't just go to the dictionary. You know, if you go look at the word there, T-H-E-R-E, there's about 75 entries. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> right? Don't just go to the dictionary. If you want to know what a word means in the Bible, look the word up, get the dictionary, and then go first to all the ways that word is used by that author in that same book. That's the best way to find out what it means. 
Go to that same book. So in this book, we would go to John, right? So if we're going to find out what this word means, we need to go to John's word. How does he use it? You know, how, how does he employ uh, this term? If that doesn't help us, then what we do is we go to other books that John wrote. See, we're going to work our way out, but now we go to other books that John wrote, which are 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. And then if we can't make a determination of that, we go to the next third level, which is other books of the same type, gospels. You see what I'm saying? There's a method here, a plan. Not just go find the word, look it up, get it out of the... So many errors have been made because people just go to the dictionary instead of having a methodology of where is it in this same book, where is it with the same author, where is it with the same kind of material. And there are other ones, but, but that'll be enough. So let me give it to you. In John 9, 7, in John 10, 40, and in John 12, 36, this word fall back has the notion of just moving said and Jesus went away from Galilee same word same word it just it just means to move back it just means to move back now that isn't as exciting as the thought of them falling down because they hear the name I am but what it does suggest, perhaps, and I would just uh, leave for your, for your thoughts, is that these Roman soldiers fall back because of the courage that they see in Jesus. Here is the guy who initiates the conversation. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazarene. I'm him. They're, we don't see people like this. We don't get around. Listen, it's, it's unlikely that they just fell down from some supernatural idea, but that they are not accustomed to that kind of courage. They're just like, whoa, how did that happen? You know, when the Roman, censor, when the Roman cohort investigates people, people are telling them all kinds of lies, saying all kinds of things. And to me, it's fascinating here that Jesus in command of the situation shows incredible courage to say, I'm him. They're not used to that. Because the word cannot mean, at least as far as we can see, that this has anything to do with any kind of supernatural power being slain or knocked down by the power of Jesus. I'm just telling you how the word is used. Now, what kind of courage here? That Jesus initiates this. We're, we're in that idea of initiating. I wrote in my notes here. I, I want to suggest that this initiation is born of knowledge. Notice verse 4. He knew all things that are coming on him. He knew all this. He knew what was going to happen. This wasn't going to surprise him. This, this wasn't some thing outside of his understanding. And so Jesus knew what was going to happen. He had courage. He understood it. The other thing I think is that in this initiating, there is some courage, if you will, because, I, wrote, I just wrote it this way, there is courage here born of love. That Jesus' courage and initiation here is born of his love for his father to do what his father asked him to do and his love for us. That he is willing to do this, to go to the cross, knowing everything that's going to happen, if you will, based on his understanding of what will happen in knowledge as well as his love for his father and for us. It ought to encourage us, I think, at some level, 
that Jesus here shows this incredible kind of courage. So, and initiate. So let me ask you this, if you just think about this week, somebody, what if you initiate a conversation or contact this week with a friend or neighbor, and after doing so, remember that Jesus initiated the conversation that brought you life, that he initiated it. This wasn't some tragedy foisted upon him. He initiated this discussion, this matter. I am him. I am Jesus the Nazarene. I told you I am he. If you seek me, it's who I am. Does it make sense? Second one here. We're going to move along in this chapter somehow. If my computer will work. Isn't it great? Talk among yourselves. Here we go. The second thing here um, is in this uh, Jesus in command is Jesus' determination. Look at verse eight. Jesus answered, I told you I'm he. If you seek me, let these go. And these are his followers, his disciples, if you will. Let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those of whom you've given me, I've lost not one. Now here's the interesting side note here. And Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave's ear or cut off his ear. And Marty's often said, you know, uh, uh, Peter wasn't aiming for the ear. <laughs> He's just a fisherman and not too good with a sword. You know, <laughs> just one of those things. And he uh, cut off the right ear of the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the father has given me, shall I not drink it? This matter here seems in, in a couple of ways here, the determination of Jesus. Jesus is determined here to carry out this. And there are two things it seems to me that he's doing. His determination is number one, to protect his followers. Look what he says, let them go. Let these go. Uh, this is, again, a bit different than uh, uh, the accounts in the synoptics because when this all happens, what do they do? They just leave. <laughs> but here John has given us some account that Jesus is in some sense saying, look, let them go. Let them go. He's committed to protecting them. He's determined that he will not allow this to happen to them. He'll protect the weak and the vulnerable. This, this idea here of Jesus keeping the command of this matter, he just says, let him go. I, I just, as I'm thinking about that, as I'm looking at that and meditating, I'm thinking, um, doesn't Jesus know that what's happening here is beyond them? These disciples don't have the equipment or the resource or the power to deal with this. I, 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 I'm fascinated by that from this standpoint. That, that Jesus recognizes their limitations. Most of the struggle in my Christian life, and I don't know about you, has been that I have refused to recognize my limitations. Anybody with me? A lot of the struggle in my life, in, in, in my Christian life, in my, in my journey, has been I've, been I've refused to accept limitation. I've just demanded things of myself. To say, you must, you should. I've changed that a little bit. Somebody was saying to me the other day, you know, you should. You, you know, I, I, I won't say what Sandy Reichert tells you. If you want to talk to her, she'll tell you. 
But I say, you know, maybe what if we could change this to you could instead of you should? Jesus here has a clear recognition of what these guys could and could not do. Do you demand things of yourself that uh, God knows are outside your capacity? Do, do you ever hear God say in, in your heart and mind, I know. You know, I, I've had some struggles in my life occasionally. And I remember one time, <clears throat> um, I, I am, as you know, needle-phobic, right? Needle-phobic. I probably have several diseases because I just don't go to the doctor. <laughs> and I remember one time that we were having a blood drive at the school. And I had tried to make an appointment for every 30 minutes <laughs> that day with students. <laughs> Listen, I'm in honor of people that give blood. I'm not making a lot. I, I'm, I am. It's, I'm, you know, it's, it's an honorable thing. Wayne Bollenbacher has given like 47 gallons, you know. Of course, Wayne doesn't have a heart, so, you know, they're just taking it right out. So it's no big <laughs> Yeah, he'll get me for that. Um, and I remember really praying about this and saying, God, you know, I, I just, you know, when I saw the needle where, you know, you can read the newspaper through it, you know. <laughs> yeah. I thought, you know, it, it, if, if, it, if I have to do it, I will someday. I thought when my friend Dave Fatkin was, you know, going out, I went to the heart hospital one night and I thought, I think this is the night. <laughs> I think this is the night I'm going to get the big needle. And uh, so I, you know, I'd really prayed about it and I already felt bad. And I felt terrible. I mean, really bad, bad. Not like little bad. I mean, like you're a rotten, dirty, no count person. And I carried that. And I remember feeling so terrible. And, I, you know, when I go to the college, when, when these, you know, 18 year old little kids are given blood, I go, let me hug you, you know, hug them and give them $5 to go buy something in a cafeteria. Because I, I mean, it's a big deal. It's important. People's lives depend on it. I remember one day, um, I mean, it was really wrecking me. And I was praying about it and uh, just saying to God, I, I, I have these crazy fears. I have these crazy anxieties. And my dad always told me when I was a kid, do the thing you fear. And I did that. You know, it didn't work. <laughs> it just didn't. I tried it. it tried, uh, nope, didn't work. <laughs> and, and I had this distinct impression that one day when I was praying. As I was praying, I said, Lord, I, I just, I don't know what I can do. I, I just, I don't know that I can do this. I want to do it. I, I see the value of it. I see the need of it. But I mean, I just, I freak out. I pass out. Just bam, just like that. And I'm praying and I had the distinct sense as I prayed about this, I heard the Lord say this to me. I know. I know. Now, according to my tradition, I was waiting for the other boot to drop. Right? I know, but... Right? And I waited. All I heard was, I know. I know. In the most compassionate, in the most kind sense that released me. Is God a tyrant? Or does he know? This is something 
you're not capable of? What are you demanding of yourself that God might not be demanding? I don't know. I, I, don't, have, I don't have a formula here. But I've been around Christian folk enough and I've been around people enough to know that there are a lot of us who keep pressing ourselves and driving ourselves and forcing ourselves in things that if we just stop for a minute, we'd think this is really not my area. This is really not me. Does that make sense? What are you maybe demanding everyone? Jesus says, let them go. They don't, have, they don't have the horsepower here. This is beyond them. Can, can you do that for yourself? Can you say to yourself, you know, maybe I just need to take a break here. Or you know what? Maybe, maybe, maybe I just need to, to recognize that other people can do this and other people are, get, but that's not me. Or, or maybe you could say to yourself, you know, I've tried this and it isn't working and I've tried this and it's working. Can I, can I just say, okay, maybe this isn't it. Or do you demand of yourself things that you're just not capable of? I've done that. I've done that often to where I've just demanded of myself, you know? How about this, you know? Hey, quit being sad. <laughs> How's that work, <laughs> right? Don't be sad, you're a Christian. Hey, quit worrying. I know what the Bible says about worry. I understand that. But to say, what I can't do this in my own strength, right? I can't keep demanding of myself there's got to be other resources. So Jesus is determined. He, he's determined to protect his followers. There's a second thing here that is fascinating to me, and it has to do with what Simon Peter does. And look here, we're already in 11 verses, so hang on. <laughs> you know, bless Peter's heart. You know, in East Texas, that means what a knucklehead. But uh, that's what that means, right? You know, when somebody says, oh, bless their heart, you know, they're going, what an idiot. <laughs> Um, Peter, out of love and devotion, misguided, if you will, decides to take up for Jesus. Now, <laughs> he's not thinking too smart. You've got the Roman cohort. This could be at least a hundred soldiers from the, the way they configure them. And they've got the chief priests and some of their soldiers, and he's got a pocket knife <laughs> that he thinks he's going to get out of here with. It's a, little, it's a little small sword. It's not like one of these big, you know, it's not like a Mel Gibson in Braveheart. It's a small one, Sakari. And, and so he, he decides out of love and devotion, he's going to stop this. Remember, this is the same guy that Jesus called Satan when he said, you're not going to do this. Jesus is determined. You know, look what he says. He says, look, shall I not drink the cup that the Father's given me? Put it away, Peter. Don't stop this. Jesus is determined to drink the cup the Father has given him. The cup is from the Father, so he's going to drink it. Now, the, the, the huge challenge here for Peter is to believe that God would somehow be using these kind of events in the life of Jesus. We, we struggle with this, but Jesus says, I'm going to drink it. And I wrote in my notes this idea here, when, when difficulty comes to our life, and boy, I we're going to be here for a month if I go too far on this one. But the huge challenge in our lives often 
in trouble or difficulty is determining what is God's will for our lives or what is the result of other wills or circumstances. I think this cliff, okay, you don't have to agree with me, thoughts and opinions of this teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, its elders or leadership. I think we're too quick to ascribe the things in our life to God personally. I think we're too quick to say, well, the Lord brought that or the Lord did that. You know, I, I think we're too quick to ascribe this. Karl Barth made this observation. He said, there's not only the will of God in the universe. There are two other wills. What are they? The devil has a will, right? And we have one. And other people have a will that affect us. Some guy decides he wants to drive down the side of the highway the wrong way while he's drunk at 10 o'clock at night. His will may affect your will, right? I think sometimes we're, we're too quick to ascribe to God everything that happens. That's the challenge, isn't it? Now, Jesus knows this cup is from his Father. He knows this. My challenge and yours is the difficulty of understanding, God, where are you in this? Is this from you? Or is this from the world and circumstances and the fallenness of our world? That's the challenge for me. Uh, maybe, maybe you've got to figure it out. But Jesus' determination is the assurance that he knows that the Father has brought this and determined this and made this. And I'm just going to say again, I think we're too quick to ascribe everything to God. I just don't believe he's the only person acting in the universe. Do you? I, I can't personally believe or grasp or, or in, in, embrace that everything that happens is God's will. Uh, that's a far, far bridge for me because there's too much in our world going on that isn't. And to simply, in some flippant, off-handed, off-the-cuff kind of way, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> um, I, I may have told you this before, but I had a guy one time uh, I was doing a Bible study in another town um, years ago, so no, nobody here. Uh, and uh, this guy uh, came up to me after the Bible study and said, hey, Cliff, um, you know, nice job, whatever. And he said, I, I want to tell you that I used to be in the ministry. And I said, okay, I think I'd heard that. And um, he said, but I sort of got away from the Lord and wasn't doing things and got out of the ministry, you know. And that happens. You know, the stress and the strain of it. He said, and, and when I did that, he said, um, you know, I was doing my own thing, walking away. And then he said, and then the Lord drowned my nine-year-old son to get me back in the ministry. My mouth often doesn't get ahead of my brain, but uh, it did in this case. When I said to him and looked at him, you're not that important. That's not possible. The arrogance of what you just said is unbelievable. Are you kidding me? You think God drowns nine-year-old kids to get you back in the ministry? I didn't tell him this, but I'm saying, man, I'm glad you're not in the ministry. <laughs> this is the challenge, isn't it? What, what is it that we face? Jesus is clear as crystal on this. Now let me, let me make another observation here and try to get you out of here. 
I'm fascinated by this idea of drinking the cup. This, the cup in the Old Testament often suggests the wrath of God. The cup of wrath. That, that Jesus is now embracing and taking on himself the just punishment or deserts or result of human sin that has to be dealt with. And, and there's all kinds of uh, nuances around this, about this cup that he's going to drink it. He's going he's to take it. He said to Peter, I'm going to drink this cup. You're not going to stop me from this. But what, a, what about this in this regard? Jesus drinking of his cup gives us the privilege to drink the new cup. What cup is that? The Lord's Supper. Jesus drinking this cup of the wrath of God, of the, of the payment for sin, of the, of the punishment. Jesus drinking this cup gives us now the privilege of drinking the new cup. Jesus is determined to do this. When you and I drink the cup, and you know we had communion or the Lord's Supper last, last Sunday, I, I always enjoyed and, and rejoice in it that I'm saying this is what I'm putting my hope and faith and trust in. But it is an understanding that this cup that represents the blood of Jesus is not only the cup for us of the new covenant, which we're thrilled about, but it's also based on the fact that he drank the cup of God's wrath. I heard somebody make this comment the other day. It's further in John. But when Jesus drinks the cup here in the garden, if you will, it's, uh, it's kind of fascinating that on the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. Here's just an idea. I've drunk it all. I drank all of the cup the Father gave me. And now I thirst. I took it all. I didn't take part of it. I didn't take some of it. I drank it all. If we had the assurance in our life that God is with us, that as Jesus drinks this cup for us, we now are freed to drink the new cup, the cup of the new covenant. It's just fascinating to me here that Jesus is determined not only to protect his followers, but he's going to drink this cup to the dregs. There have been lots of speculation on this and lots of questions about this, about what was happening when Jesus did all that. This imagery suggests that Jesus is taking all of this in. It isn't just, it isn't just gonna go, he's gonna drink it. When you drink something, you take it into your body. You, you absorb it, if you will, into yourself. And Jesus is like, I'm willing to absorb, I'm willing to take, I'm willing to drink it to the bottom of all there is to the payment and wrath of God. To me, that's incredible. It's showing me that Jesus is in charge. He's in command. Does that make sense? He's in command of this situation here. He said, I'm going to drink it willingly. I'm going to take it in to my own self. So Jesus will drink the cup. Jesus will involve himself in the protection of his people. And part of that protection is he's willing to take the wrath, the punishment, the result of sin. 
And Jesus provides another cup based on this one. So let me ask you to consider something just to remember this. What if this week when you drink a cup of coffee or tea, you pause and remember that Jesus drank the cup of suffering for us? That that Jesus took it on himself and drank it, all of it. We used to sing a song, I I, I still think of it, um, and it goes like this. Jesus paid it mostly. (laughs) Isn't that how that goes? (laughs) It's funny how we act like that, though, isn't it? You know, we act like that. Like I've got to do something dramatic or something valiant or something great for my own forgiveness. But it says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. This idea of did he pay it all? Did he drink it all? Did he leave some for you or for me? Did, 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 he, did he finish that out to where, if you will, that forgiveness is complete now. Jesus will say, we'll get there someday, but I love this phrase. When Jesus said on the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished. It is not in the process. It is finished. And you know, it seems to me in remembering that Jesus drank the cup for us, he drank it fully, he drank it from his father, that now we can participate in his life and know that our sins are forgiven. Because Listen, listen, I tell my students this. Your, your sins are not really forgiven. Let that cause some tension. (laughs) They're actually paid for. I think that's an important distinction. They're forgiven because they've been taken care of. They're forgiven because they are completely taken care of and paid for. Not just forgiven. Paid for. There's no residual here. There's no interest. It's a full payment. So this week when you drink a cup of coffee like that, would you take that and say, my sins are not just forgiven. They're paid. In full for good. Well, we're going to finish chapter 18 next week. Somehow. Let's pray. Jesus, um, this event has been portrayed in art and music in all kinds of ways, and yet we know that we still cannot understand all the depths of what you did and for our life and salvation. So we pray that in this coming week that you'll help us to live with some sense that you are in command of the situation that we find ourselves in. As we look to you, as we trust you, would you help us to see your work in our behalf as never before? And we pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.